Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker, and I am so excited to be joined by today's guest. I have been waiting for this conversation for a long time. If you've seen our webinars, you know that this individual is absolutely genius and also has quite the personalities. I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode. And can you believe it? We're in season three. I will say that for every episode. This is season three. I'm just so excited. Three is a good number. And I feel like this season really just embodies who we are as a community. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Chapel Love. <laughs> Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. I cannot wait to get today started. I mean, third days, third time's the charm. So though every episode's yeah. great. I'll start with telling this story. When I first met you, oh, it no. was on a webinar around mental health. Mm -hmm. And I just was struggling with your last name because it's hyphenated. And the spelling of the first part of the last name doesn't necessarily lend itself to just what I would expect for the way it's pronounced. So I was so nervous, but you were so kind and just really gave me a way to remember how to say it. And you will forever be the chapel of love in my <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's okay. Dave Chappelle like has ruined the entire name for all of us now. So I sometimes tell people it's CH Apple like the fruit, but <laughs> Dr. Love is fine or Dr. CO is totally chill too, because it's, yeah. it's easy to remember. <laughs> so I do want to talk about the psychology aspect of your work. But before we get there, I saw a photo of you from Las Vegas Pride that had you in the DJ book. Oh, Tell me about man. that. Um, I am a member of a nonprofit organization called the Nevada Psychological Association. So not only am I the member, I'm uh, the president-elect, um, the, the first Black identified president-elect and president as of next year in the organization's 65-year history. So uh, needless to say, sometimes when I throw ideas out there, probably more people than really should are like, yeah, this seems like a good idea. She sounds like she knows what she's talking about. Um, <laughs> so that was one of the the instances of community outreach for my my hobby got to, to to be on display so i'm gonna keep my day job because i feel like i'm much better at therapy than hitting it on the ones and twos but <laughs> yeah we were out uh just showing support sometimes it's about being in the community and letting folks know like hey we're here and we we want y'all to know that so i was able to to play on a float as a volunteer dj for the las vegas pride parade which was pretty rad yeah i love it absolutely love it and i come from a family of djs two oh, no. of my uncles dj <laughs> like lower one of my uncles, lowercase j lowercase yeah <laughs> no but but my real dj uncle was like big time the big you know several thousand people clubs overseas in europe oh, he was like a headliner for years over there doing that so you know, I, I play with music editing and, and production and that kind of thing as I used to, but nowhere near that scale. So I, I'm like you, lowercase, 
Yes. On. <laughs> the biggest struggle was what's the DJ name, and I because I just I'm not great with names. It'd be like DJ Serotonin or something, just like oh my god, it doesn't roll off the it doesn't roll off the tongue. So I'm still working on that. I'm gonna have to try and hire your uncle as a consultant. Cool, he'll just he'll get me squared away. I'm sure. <laughs> yes, you will. So what you said though in that I think is so important to highlight. This season is really about creating a compassionate community. I've highlighted so many amazing individuals and. This started off as a project just to help us get through COVID. No idea we'd still be dealing with COVID in season three, but I I really just wanted to amplify hope and let people know good things were still happening. And so those conversations were a bit lighter. And I really was just trying to introduce everyone to everyone else. This season, though, I think it's so critical that we actually dive in and let the rubber meet the road, so to speak, and how do we create compassionate communities? In May, the City Council of Las Vegas adopted compassion as a foundational value for the city. And that's fantastic. And having a resolution for that is a wonderful first step, but I wanna make it a reality for each individual in our community. I know that's right. And and you being there, at, you know, taking off some of that professional hat, so to speak, in the community, just getting in the mix, um, I think is one of the ways that we do that. Community building really is relationship building and helping people just to know and see each other. So if you wouldn't mind, share how, how this has been for you, this, this entire experience of going from, you know, life as we knew it to the pandemic life now kind of reopening and being on a float DJing for the community? Um, I think we're, I don't know, day 863 into like two weeks to, to curve the curve, but really it's been an adjustment. I don't necessarily like or use the word normal because I don't really know what that means. Like for, for each individual person that may and often does look drastically different. So it can be anxiety provoking. To, to be out in a crowd. I know they were anticipating like 25,000 people at that event, which I'm, I'm so grateful that so many folks were out to support pride and, and all of its, its efforts. And also I was like, Holy cow, that's a lot of people when we've been coming from, you know, uh, 2020 where perhaps five people in a room felt like <laughs> a swarm of individuals around us. So to me, it's about really having an attitude of gratitude first and foremost, right? So I'm, I'm just grateful that we're able to, to be out and show and be in the community again in ways that I didn't know if that would return a year ago, six months ago. Um, and also to, to adapt, uh, just to be able to, to recognize your own, like have your own insights into what I feel comfortable with and what I don't. And, you know, for a lot of folks that are vaccinated and, and using other precautions like masking and social distance and having your hand sanitizer and things like that. And we were able to make it happen. So I was, I was pretty excited. Yeah. Pretty cool. From the professional psychology aspect, and I want to ask this in a, in a very uh, mindful way, because um, the way it's coming across in my head is not what, I, not very compassionate. Oh, I was say that. <laughs> but no in in all seriousness my my frustration in the fact that we are still dealing with what we are dealing with comes from the not only hesitancy around vaccination but general resistance to being part of a collective and so when i look at our constitution 
and how our country was founded, freedom was a huge component, but freedom in the context of the the collective welfare or the, or the general good. What is happening from a psychological perspective that is causing people to be so hesitant, so resistant, and frankly, some people are just mean about it. I think fear has a lot to do with with what's going on. I don't mean fear in a judgment or like a morality uh, kind of kind of place there, but I recognize that when I sometimes have the opportunity to speak with someone who might be hesitant or might be full on like, no, no way, I want to do my own research. You know, where where does that research come from? Is that on Facebook? Is that uh, Google University, or or is that you know some of the the discussions we've had lately about like the death of expertise? In, in some circles. So I always give the example, you know, I'm an expert. I have a DR in front of my name, but guess what? I'm an expert in a very small amount of things related to forensic psychology and correctional psychology and counseling psychology. I don't know anything about how to take a carburetor out of a car. And so when we're looking at things like using words like opinions, we, we just get to perhaps be mindful about it. Psychologically, we, we talk about concepts like confirmation bias So I think Green Bay Packers might be a great football team and see, look, I've found an article that also says that they're a great football team. So that further lends itself to my theory that they're, you know, a a really great football team. But when it comes to how we deal as a collective, we we also get to take a look at the cultural aspects. So I I come from a black culture uh, and that tends to be very collective. Uh, You know, we all we got kind of a thing, you know, I'm, I'm throwing back to like my Kendra Lamar days and, and, and pieces like that, but also that if I'm doing well, other members of my group are doing well, we're pulling each other up. And so when you take a look at an individual that's got that type of perspective, it's really easy to see why after what I just mentioned, for me, it's about, I want to be safe for other people. I recognize that, you know, I'm a pretty good health and I'll probably survive something, but I do things in my everyday life that inconvenience me, and I'm happy to do those things because it helps to protect the collective. And if you have a person coming from an opposing culture, like more of an individualistic side, sometimes there can really be some dissonance there, some snags, a bit of a a back and forth, if you will, on, well, I don't want to be inconvenienced or I'm entitled to not have to listen to this rule or something like that. So there depends on the person, of course, is that age old psych answer. But I I think that's some of the things that sometimes we see when we have these conversations. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for everything you just said. One thing that really stood out was the death of expertise. And so on this podcast, we have been so privileged to have true experts and you name it, they, you know, we had the, the full spectrum. Uh, but one thing that has concerned me is that Dunning-Kruger thing that's happening uh, where, because we don't know what we don't know, we think Absolutely. we know more than we know until you know. And what I'm seeing is the experts are so cautious now, and especially in light of when we first, you know, I think it was March or or so, it was like, well, we don't really want you to go up and buy all of the masks. So medical professionals don't have any. Mm -hmm. And people understood that to be masks don't do anything, Mm -hmm. which again, that's a whole nother talk show. Um, But then when we did ask for masks, it was like, well, you just said we didn't need them. So now I'm confused. Do they, do we need them or not? And as you mentioned, uh, University of Google, uh, just people would say, oh, I found this article, this meme, I saw it on Facebook. Mm. But the other piece was people that really loved each other were sharing information, trying to help. Mm. 
I got so many texts from family members telling me to boil lemon in my kitchen to kill the virus. And I mean, I'm, I'm not a public health expert, but public health is my day job. And so I know a little bit about how it works and I know boiling lemon in the kitchen doesn't work. Um, but it was frustrating because I wanted to approach it with kindness and say, thank you for caring. And here's what we actually should be doing. But then it turned into sometimes a battle where it's like, well, they are telling you this, but that's not really the truth. I found this one doctor from this one place uh -huh. that disagreed. So I trust the one and to not, you know, go on too far of a tangent. I always relate this back to fundraising. And if you're trying to raise money, you don't show a big crowd of refugees or hungry people or sick kids. You show one because that's what moves people to give. And I think it, we're experiencing this in a, a reverse in a way with the pandemic where, well, I found the one that disagrees with all of the experts. If you could share just any insights or ideas that pop up for you. Yeah, that's that confirmation bias through and through, right? Excuse me, do you remember those old commercials where they're like, you know, four out of five dentists agree that this is the best dental floss that you can possibly buy on the market today? Having been a doctor for a little while, I can say that we, we get paid. It's our job to have strong opinions about a thing. In fact, you want that oftentimes. If somebody comes to me for something like diagnostic clarity, they want me to have an opinion and have a, and sound really sure and be sure in my opinion, which is what we do, right? And also <laughs> that becomes pretty difficult when you're, you're using the one, you know, um, to, to justify your current actions. I, I always try and, you know, encourage folks to take a look at what does it, why is that important for you? That that one doctor said that only boiling lemons is going to rid you of this virus, that you don't need the vaccine. Why, why are you holding on to that? What makes that feel safe for you in some cases for some people? And that gets to be the work that folks sometimes get to do. You know, is that anxiety? Is that I need this to be true because I'm scared of what's the alternative? What do you mean I can't fight it? You know, what do you mean we can't see it? Um, what do you mean I might lose somebody that I care about if I don't have that? So to me, it, it, it goes back to our, our, our research on, on the biases that we hold and how important sometimes it is. If I'm scared, maybe the answer is something else. For me to hold on to something, no matter if it's one doctor amidst a sea of other people, we see some of this psychology when you take a look at conspiracy theories and things along those lines, right? So if you're on TikTok or if you're, you know, maybe at, at a dinner table and you have an uncle that is informing you of, of some type of theory that you're like, wait a second, <laughs> that doesn't sound right. But when psychologically, sometimes when we are put up against a mountain of emotional response to a thing, an assassination of a president or some beloved figure is such a scary and heartfelt issue. And then sometimes for some people, when they see the person that instigated that, the assassin, and that person doesn't match up to the love and the adoration, there's more of that dissonance, right? That's the, the imbalance and people have to do something with that. Sometimes you can talk it through and make it work and other people hang on to other things. And so it becomes a, you know, a theory on why, oh, well, this one doctor is being judged by the, by the media or by, 
you know, this majority, this, this somehow silent yet also definitely loud majority that's whole job is to make sure that this one doctor that lives, I don't know, insert arbitrary state, Ohio, you know, as opposed to the statistically more likely certain, you know, circumstance that this is, you know, in a peer review, sometimes there's peers that disagree and that's part of the scientific process. I remind folks, go through the scientific process, bust out that old, if you learn this in high school or go on Google and learn about that. Doctors frequently disagree and we all happen to be living in a time right now where they're developing something in real time that is hopefully going to help us in generations. And sometimes that process is messy. And sometimes a month from now, you might learn something that seems diametrically opposed to what they did, but this is the scientific process and it's been there for a while. And I, and I think it's helped people for a long while. And I hope it continues to. Yeah. So many important points in that. One big one is I've got to believe this other thing because the reality is too hard. It's scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's a big one. And I, I can so empathize with that in the work that I'm privileged to do around um, issues like homelessness mm. or um, even, you know, domestic violence and things of that nature. It's overwhelming at times and it's distressing and heartbreaking. And I would rather believe that, oh, you know what? Homelessness is a problem we can't solve. It's not just a policy choice. Because recognizing that we could fix this, recognizing that we have more than enough resource to end world hunger, not just Las Vegas hunger, but we haven't, that's overwhelming. That's frustrating. It's infuriating. It, it, it covers the full spectrum and, and it causes grief. Um, and for me, it also just causes that cognitive dissonance because my core belief about humanity is each person is good. Everyone is really seeking good. And then I wrestle with, wow, this person is kind of a jerk. <laughs> Which but I, I move. Yeah. yeah, but I, I move from what's wrong with you to, you know, the trauma informed, which is what happened to you. But I really try to live in what I consider resiliency, which is what are your strengths? What what's right with you? Mm. That I mean, that that hits because that trauma informed care and and how we utilize resiliency some of us every day we're also reminded that that can be exhausting in and of itself you know to have to detach and explain why black lives matter yet again out here in you know the year of solange knowles 2021 still explaining some of these concepts that (laughs) that for for a lot of us you know resonate as as having been true long before the summer of 2020 but I think that becomes a time where I, I remind people, I say full on doctor's orders, be selfish, you know, engage in your self-care, take your breaks, cultivate your circle to have people in it that are, are going to allow you that space to, to be self-compassionate because that psychologically can be pretty damaging too. We talk about burnout for things like jobs that also happens for our psychological defenses because those those, those pieces you brought up, resiliency every day is exhausting. Yeah. And I'm just going to pause here and say you are a fantastic therapist because I'm, I'm just about to unzip for you. And I, I don't care that this is a recorded podcast. Oh, no. I'm unzipping. <laughs> We're going to deal with this. Uh, Help me understand. With, no, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> with the issue of self-compassion and self-care and all of that, 
we, of course, promote self-compassion every Sunday on our social media. And we so encourage beginning with taking care of you, put your mask on first. And then there are celebrities that have such an influence, particularly in the black community. I'm thinking in particular Tyler Perry and Medea who will use the analogy of a tree when talking about people and say, some people are like leaves, you know, they come in and wind blows and they're gone. Let those people go. Some people are like branches. They're a little stronger, but you want the roots. And every time I hear that, I'm like, but without leaves, the tree can't do photosynthesis and it'll die. So leaves are important. Um, In the self-care piece, what I'm seeing is people, again, it's hard. And I'm I'm not pretending that it's easy to have a conversation with someone that is telling you something that is verifiably false is true. That's not an easy conversation. And I don't think we need to engage with every random social media person we encounter. And this is splitting up. This is building up families, brothers and sisters, mothers and, and daughters around, well, I'm just going to cut them off because I'm going to take care of me. How can we strike the balance where we recognize that truly taking care of yourself means that you're a part of a community, a collective. You're part of the body. Your hand can wash your back, kind of, but without another person you're going to have some dirt back there. How do we deal with that that almost paradoxical balance? I think recognizing that it is a tightrope um, and, and giving yourself some of that grace to slip and fall. This isn't a tightrope that is up 10 stories. This is a tightrope that's, you know, maybe six inches off the ground. And so recognizing and giving that grace, I think is going to be an important piece. What research talks about uh, the most, honestly, is empathy. That's how we help connect one person to another, opposed diametrically or not, um, over something that is as maybe trivial as does, you know, pineapple belong on pizza versus something far more important like policy and changes and who gets to feel safe in a space versus who, you know, doesn't and, and doesn't have that privilege. We can increase empathy in a number of different ways. There's some cool research that came out that talked about even reading fiction can help increase empathy in participants. And I think that that relates to exactly what you were saying, finding the one, being able to connect with another person. The tiring part about some of that work is that it requires you to use more of the academic kind of space. So really helping a person recognize, you know, for someone who has an opposing view, imagine what that's like for them. Why, especially the tighter they're holding on to it. Now that requires me to set my emotionality down and all my stuff going on down to be able to help them. But that is, that's how we can help start to connect those folks. Some of it is going to be boundary setting. There are plenty of families out there that have rules now where, you know, we don't talk about this particular thing at, you know, the dinner table or at a holiday time or in front of this person, because I recognize that they always take it from zero to a hundred. And so being able to give yourself that grace to recognize that it, I certainly am not able to walk on a tightrope easily, if at all, at times, to recognize that being able to empathize on both parts is going to be one of the more effective ways to get two people closer to one another, and also to recognize boundaries. And sometimes that just means that we're not going to be talking about this. I choose not to engage in this conversation with you because the last five times we've talked about it, it's been nothing but conflict and and we don't need that right now, which is hard in and of itself. And I'm I'm hearing choosing righteousness over rightness. 
mm. in that you're really talking about honoring the relationship and the fact that there's more to each of us than this sliver of a view about a particular subject. My and, you know, our improv, right? Yes, and. Yeah. Um, that that piece of it is is wonderful for things like pineapple on pizza or even how, you know, you organize something as vital as the silverware drawer because forks go on the left. Um, but when you're talking about wearing a mask in a public space to prevent a respiratory virus from spreading and your your Facebook meme research is what you're basing your opposition on because, I mean, doctors and nurses have been wearing masks forever, but clearly they take them off when they're not in public because if you wear a mask, you're going to get sick from breathing your own air. I mean, how do you, how do you balance that? that? That's where I'm struggling is a compassionate community is an un uncomfortable community. So we have to deal with what's real. And the reality is take coronavirus out the picture. That's just our current woe. But let's look at homelessness. Every single military decision we make to build a new bomber is taking food and shelter away from that person on the street. Do we actually care about each other? Or is it just nice to think that we care? How do we strike the balance of what really matters? I go back to that collective. These are things that we are able to see as being beneficial for the group, even if it's uncomfortable for some of the members in the group. Now that is also pretty opposed to that kind of very American individual, dirty, hairy, I'm here on, I'm an island. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and largely change what's going to happen for me. But I, I say, we talk about boundaries. I think there's a lot of people learning these days that irrespective of if you agree with the policy or the regulation or not, you have to follow it. And if you don't, you won't be shopping in the store. You will not be sitting on this airplane to fly from here to wherever it is you were trying to get to. And I think that that's hard for people. You, I mean, you please feel free to pull your phone out and type in any type of, of you know, Karen video or, or something along those lines where you see people just aghast at, what do you mean my entitlement, my privilege doesn't work in this space? So you can only talk in a rational way so long to a person before it has to start, you know, becoming about reinforcement. Like this is simply the rule. And here's why the rule is the case. Nobody's talking to a four-year-old. It's not a, because I say so type thing, but after a while, I, I, I agree that that tightrope gets smaller and smaller to where perhaps it's, it's simply a needle and thread. Your work has focused a lot with those that have been incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And that, that's one of the subjects that we have not talked a lot about on this podcast, but I think it's time to introduce it and to start considering it, uh, particularly in light of the 13th Amendment, which essentially says that there's no slavery except for prison. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know that a lot of people are really as aware of, of that circumstance. But as I've done more work, um, I'll, I'll tell this quick story now, get to the question. I was working with, I want to say hope for prisoners, but uh, one of the, the agencies that does this work with formerly incarcerated individuals. And I was leading a meditation. It was my first time there. And I do meditation. That's just my thing. Like we're going to breathe together. We're going to pause. Yeah. And I invited everyone to either shut their eyes or take a soft gaze. 
And I was not aware of how triggering that could be in that setting and that those who were um, in rival gangs were literally next to each other. And even though they, they had this idea of maintaining their freedom, if given the chance, there may be an issue. Um, so a gentleman kindly educated me after the event, like, hey, we can do these sort of things, but just make sure you keep your eyes open <laughs> and, and make it you know, very, very clear that everyone is still visible. Um, and I was like, wow, didn't think about that. But the reason that came to mind is your, your conversation around boundaries and really protocol and, and understanding what's happening. The, the way that people are treated in a prison system does not seem to lend itself to actually returning to the collective. How can we work through that as a community to ensure that when they are in, uh, in a prison, in a jail cell, that it's not just them sitting there, it's, it's actually restoration. They are being rehabilitated. Ooh, so this turned into a five-hour podcast because here we go. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, okay, that's enough. Um, the, the simplest way to answer that is ensuring that there's actually rehabilitation rather than simply housing going on. This is not the case. This is not an all or nothing, mind you, because there are some people, and I've worked with some people who are just like, no, I'm, I, I refuse to engage in this. I'm waiting my time out. That's your body, your choice. I'll be here if you ever want to talk or if you ever want to learn a skill or if you ever want to get you know any of these things done that might help you on the way out. Here's that empathy piece, right? I very- Before free- we get to the empathy- What's up? Before, for that individual that is obstinate in that yeah. way, it just put a flag, you know, sticky note. How do we work with that individual? How do we overcome or discover what it is, whether it's fear, whether it's lack of hope, or um, just they don't believe they can change? I want to talk about how to deal with that. Okay, to your empathy piece. Yeah, no, please. I, I think that that's, that's the exact route I take. I, I find out what's important to them. I've, I've had opportunity to work uh, with, with people who are incarcerated for a short time in a jail system, all the way to life in prison. I've done, you know, federal prison work, local, state, uh, pieces along those lines, um, to include like the one supermax, uh, you know, in, in the country. So I, I can safely say that I've worked the, the gamut there and have absolutely run into individuals like that. Anywhere along that spectrum of security, Find out what's important to them. If you are here for the next 50 years, what do you wish you could have done? What would you do if you were outside of here? Sometimes that's improve the relationships with my family. Find out who my kids are. Sometimes that's, I want to get a college degree. I want to learn more. I used to like school, but I never had the opportunity to, to get it done. And then really just help them achieve that goal. Sometimes people don't want to deal with anything. And in that circumstance, I'll definitely respect that space for a while. Guess what? I'm annoyed. I'm definitely going to be also checking in on you again to find out, okay, so you've been here for a month now. What do you think? Why is that answer the same for you? What's different about that? And that's how you you get a foothold, if you will, into a person. How can we help you achieve whatever goal you can? You are likely to initially get the answer of, I'm in prison. What are you talking about? Get out of my face. How can I have a life in here? And the answer is, of course, you, you're going to have the life that you make. 
and you have that autonomy. It's letting people know you have autonomy, even in a system where literally, if I tell you to sit down in that chair, you have to do that or else there's going to be a consequence. But we build that self-autonomy because it's those same skills that are going to help you when you get out of here. It's that assumption that a person is in a circumstance where they're developing skills, which have helped them survive. I'm from outside Chicago. Okay. So we have a whole cultural piece. If somebody steps on my shoes, if I'm walking down, you know, insert street in Chicago, that's a very different way that I would deal with that than if I were in a school system here or walking on UNLV's campus or something along those lines. We learn these skills because they help us survive. The most important piece that I talk with people about, especially if you've been incarcerated for a fair amount of time, a long amount of time, is you cannot use those same set of skills across circumstances. You are not likely to be as successful. Uh, and an easier way of, of thinking of that is, you know, we don't act the same at a football game where I might be shouting or wearing face paint to match my favorite team or something along those lines versus in a library. I'm going to get kicked out of the library. It's not because I'm a bad guy. It's not because I'm a scumbag. It's just because you need to learn a different set of skills. And that's the foothold that I've been most successful with. Always successful? No, certainly not. That's context. And, and yeah. part of my compassionate culture training includes recognizing that different events are perceived and recognized differently based on the context. Sure. And based on that person's experience, you know, their their understanding of culture. So I think that's what you shared is so important. Back to creating an environment of rehabilitation. How do we do that? Recognizing that these are human beings and that I, th I think most recent research talks about approximately 90, 95% of individuals who are currently incarcerated are eventually going to be released into our society, not on some tiny desert aisle that will never be seen again, but walking down the street, all of these things. As a community member, it's absolutely a thing that I would want for folks to be able to function and function in a high capacity while we're out here. That is rehabilitation 101. Sometimes that involves, you know, addressing how are you dealing with stress right now? How do you deal with conflict in here? Is it the exact same as how you used to deal with that? Why are you not growing and changing from that? What's the barrier there? A lot of that has to do with helping people realize that we're talking about and to human beings. That can be very challenging, especially for folks whose, you know, primary job is safety and security. Not everybody wants to have a, a big, long conversation. Like I said, so there are some circumstances and times where if you, if I'm informing you to go stand over there and, and stand down, then that's the, that's the behavior I get, or there's simply going to be a consequence. It's not a conversation, but recognizing that we're talking to these human beings and giving folks better opportunity. I, I, I love organizations like uh, you know, like Hope uh, and, and a lot of other folks in town that are, are doing profit and nonprofit work related to reentry for formerly incarcerated folks, uh, because it's challenging. I remind folks, you know, when I'm having these conversations amongst, you know, professional circles as well, that if I were in a situation where I just get out of prison and I was released with a bus ticket and three days worth of meds, I probably wouldn't function very highly either. You know, it's not a it's not a morality issue or, or, or judgment. It's how can we build a successful circumstance for a human being to be able to to flourish? Uh, it's I, I sometimes have to remind you know colleagues and other folks that we we talk about people as if 
there's this morality of, you know, this person's maybe lower SES or doesn't have a, has, you know, some financial instability or, or things like that. It is absolutely harder to, to be broke than to be middle-class in a lot of circumstances. I can remember having to buy like cheaper versions of work boots, you know, back before I was doing psychology work full-time and you have to buy more work boots when you buy them from Walmart or something, because they break down easier. And so you're always playing catch up and it's like, how can we help people catch up? That's it. That's how to separate rehabilitation from housing or free labor. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) We're not there yet, but (laughs) we should be. Yeah. But what you mentioned really I heard was just empathy. A lot of people view empathy as putting yourself in someone's shoes. And I think that's so critical. I express empathy in a, a bit more broad way, which is, look from their direction because their shoes aren't going to fit you. It's just, it's, it's, you got different feet. Um, but at least if we can look at a thing from the same direction, we can begin to see. I always use that example of the nine or the six. Are we looking at a nine or a six? Well, the person that wrote it knew what they were writing. But if we're looking at it from opposite sides, we can debate all day about what number it actually is. Um, so I, I think that's vital. Uh, do you work with actual law enforcement officers? And I'm on a, a little mini campaign in my heart to rename police officers to peace officers. I just feel like that's really more what their purpose is. So let's call them that. But do you work with whatever the title may be, those individuals? <laughs> yeah, I mean, being, I, I I try to. Yeah, the, the, the piece that I think allows me in maybe five seconds more of listening time than, than the average Joe is, is because I've done federal law enforcement. That's, that's been, you know, a large part of my, my career doing correctional work. And, and so I get it where I'm like, Oh man, you know, I feel as if I'm, I'm missing a part of myself when I don't have my keys in exactly the right spot on the right side, or if I don't have my walkie or my, my stab resistant vest or whatever it might be. So I, I, I feel you, I, I say strange things like copy that and, and 10, four, like I'm talking on a, <laughs> a walkie. Um, and, and so some of being within that culture of law enforcement helps. And then I get in those rooms and I, and I shake stuff up and I say, hey, what are we doing to address anti-Blackness in this area? What are we doing to address, you know, uh, you know and transphobia and things along those lines in correctional systems? So I do. And I enjoy working with folks because you can t- take any training, that's, that's a big piece of what I do these days, training, consultation, in addition to my clinical work, um, and specifically create it to be well-received within a CJ criminal justice system type circumstance, because things are different. In the same way, if I were a chef, I wouldn't be teaching the exact same training techniques across subjects. You, you get a a cool opportunity because I've lived in some of those circumstances to really shape how we talk to folks. And I think that that is one of the reasons why I've been more successful when working with law enforcement agencies. They're like, Oh, okay. You kind of get a little bit where I'm coming from. Even if I'm not saying commonality. Yeah, absolutely. How do you define compassion? You, I'm, I'm still processing your, you're walking in someone else's shoes or, or looking from their direction. I, I think I would define compassion by how I approach that, the, the empathy aspect, which is looking to see what direction they've come from. I assume you've, you've got skills and, and abilities and, 
and things like that that have helped you. And okay, so let's let's figure a way to expand upon those and and add new ones. I, I would define compassion as a willingness to acknowledge I'm not the most important person in this room and to open my eyes and, and take a look around the room and oftentimes just to listen to see what someone needs, who isn't in the room, whose voice isn't being heard, who's being called upon four times more frequently than, than the other people in the room. Well, I think this has been such a rich conversation. We could definitely do five hours easily. There's so many more subjects I want to just touch on. Uh, but before we go, what is on your playlist? What are you listening to right now? And I want to be specific around this, not just your general playlist. But if you're thinking of a song or, you know, maybe even an album that represents the true spirit of what Las Vegas is, what might that song be? My playlist right now is a lot of EDM, so that's instrumental. That's not going to be helpful at all. But <laughs> I, I think one of my, which is kind of surprising for some folks, unless you know me well and how, I guess, maybe eccentric I can be. My favorite musical group is the Beach Boys. Um, and I think Wouldn't It Be Nice is, is a good piece of, you know, hope for future you know, what, what can we change? Not necessarily the, the context of the song, but that, that one snippet of, of, of lyric alone, you know, wouldn't it be nice if, if we could change this thing and, you know, we would be able to make improvements for everybody that lives here. Cause that to me is the whole point of living in a community. That's why I love living here. So. Yeah. That's, that's definitely going to be what I'm rocking after this. I got this you. Not a problem. <laughs> with, with, our, our city being so young in spirit, we don't have the pillars, the institutions that other cities have as you go like towards the East Coast. If you could change or add anything to our city to make it truly embody our value of compassion, what might that be? Mm, an understanding of wage gap and, and, and service industry. I, I think that there's amazing uh, unions out here that have been fighting much louder, more effectively than, than I ever will um, be able to. But really acknowledging that there are not two classes of people that live here, that we all live in these same circumstances, whether I go home to a $3.5 million mansion or whether I go home to an apartment that I've been renting or you know a hotel I've been staying out of. So really recognizing that once we start you're again seeing all of those folks as, as being human beings and worthy of compassion, time, reflection, and, and, and grace and patience, then I think that's really going to help. I'm going to ask you a series of, or present a series of statements and just, just finish them for me. Oh, okay. They're going to be easy, I promise. I was, I was very Freudian. I love it. Okay, what's up? <laughs> love is. My last name, sorry, that was very literal. Um, <laughs> it's true. Love is what we aspire to be and, and how we serve others. You are worthy because. You exist. The hope of humanity is. The future, our younger generations. All right, Whitney Houston. <laughs> Last one. 
my light shines because of the support I've been shown, the love I've been shown, the grace I've been shown, my family, my friends, my 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 squad, my my spouse. Beautiful. Well, I want to thank you so, so much for joining Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I am still excited about this entire conversation. You are just truly a light and a love in our community. And what you are doing is so important. Thank you for your work. Thank you for being exactly who you are. And thank you for bridging community the way that you do. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I've been long trying to, to weasel my way onto this. <laughs> so I'm glad it worked out. And thank you for doing what you do, because I, I, I don't want to let that go unsaid that recognizing compassion in our community is one of the things that makes you proud to live here. So I think that's that's the thing that you bring, the light that you shine. Thank you. And we can leave it there. Cool. All right, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I am Will Rucker, and I am so grateful you have joined this particular show. As I always remind you, you are not just a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop, and what you do matters. So live compassionately.